0: God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He hides his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. That was William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I wanna invite you to turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter one. This morning we're gonna start a short four week series on the book and what I love about the book of Ruth is that it's a story all about divine providence or the doctrine of God's providence the idea that God is sovereignly orchestrating all things according to His purpose and plan for His people's good and for His own glory even through our sin and even through our suffering. Let me say that again. God is sovereignly orchestrating all things according to His purpose and plan for His people's good and for His own glory, even through our sin and even through our suffering. Robert Germain Thomas was a Welsh missionary in the mid-1800s, and while serving as a missionary in China, a burden began to grow on him for the people of Korea. At that time, Korea was not welcoming to foreigners, and they closed their borders. They were very hostile. But Robert knew that God was calling him to bring the gospel to Korea. And so in 1866, Robert boarded a ship that sailed to Korea and coming upon shore he leapt out of the ship carrying a Chinese Bible in his hand and was quickly met by attackers and brutally murdered. Robert literally died trying to get his Bible into their hands, crying, Jesus, Jesus. And that Chinese Bible was later taken by a local Korean man and used as wallpaper in his home. It was a dark time and a dark providence why would the sovereign God allow for this to happen to Robert where was God in his darkest hour what was the purpose of this I'm sure many if not all of us have asked those questions of God in in dark times why God where are you God what what could possibly be the purpose of this in my life God Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The book of Ruth gives us a glimpse into the quiet, mysterious, and hidden work of God in one of the darkest times in Israel's history when many of the why, what, and where questions were being asked. But before we dig into the book of Ruth this morning, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy inspired inerrant word this morning. Lord God, your word which goes forth and accomplishes precisely what you desire. Come now, Lord, and give us understanding and open our hearts to receive your word. Amen. So verse one opens the book of Ruth and says that all of this took place in the days when the judges ruled. And this opening line immediately casts a dark, dark shadow onto what is about to unfold in this story. Why? What was so bad about the days when the judges ruled? Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book that comes right before Ruth, the book of Judges, and look at the very last sentence of the book you see a final, woeful, summarizing comment on this whole 400-year time period. The last sentence of the book of Judges says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, just to refresh our memories, to bring us into the context of the story, Recall that God had brought his chosen people out of enslavement under Egypt in a great exodus through a man named Moses and then gave his people his law and commandments and then began to lead them to the land of Canaan, the promised land. But instead of journeying straight to Canaan by the will of God, which should have only taken a few days, God's people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their faithlessness and rebellion and sin against God and His word and His will. But after those 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, God's people finally enter into Canaan, drive out its wicked inhabitants, and settle in the land. But After a while, God's people begin worshiping false gods. And Israel just spirals downward and downward into utter chaos and corruption and evil. These were the days when the judges ruled and Israel had no king and everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. If you've seen or read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you might recall that one of its biggest themes is the need for a king because in places where no kings reigned evil reigned and middle earth was in need of a king to rule and reign in righteousness and to vanquish the powers of evil and likewise Israel was in desperate need of a godly king to lead them and guide them in the truth and to protect them from evil the book of Ruth takes place during this time Israel has no king. And really, I think it's an obvious theological statement as well, because, well, who was, who was Israel's true king? God himself. But Israel was now living as if they had no king. And because Israel had no king and wasn't living under the lordship of the true king, everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. And we don't have to venture into fantasy novels to understand why this is a problem. We need only to look around at the culture today which is widely, largely doing the same thing. This culture which widely regards moral values, what is good and what is bad, as a matter of personal preference. Moral ethics, what is right and what is wrong, as a matter of personal preference. Truth, what is actually real, as a matter of personal preference the value of human life as a matter of personal preference and the meaning of life itself as a matter of personal preference. You have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, it does not exist, Friedrich Nietzsche said. And Nietzsche, the 19th century atheist philosopher, is right if there is no God, if there is no true king. Why? If there is no true king, there is no ultimate standard of good, no ultimate standard of right, no ultimate standard of truth, no ultimate standard of what constitutes value and no meaning for our existence in this universe. If there is no God, we are forced to believe that we came from nothing meaningful because there is no creator. There is no meaning for our existence in this universe. Human beings, We're just the product of random chance and evolutionary mutations and natural selection. So we came from nothing meaningful. We go to nothing meaningful because everything just ends in death. There is no afterlife. And so, to avoid hopelessness and despair, we must pretend that everything in the middle somehow has value, somehow matters, and say things like, Well, you have to determine your own meaning in life. But to say you determine your own meaning in life is just another way of saying there is no ultimate meaning at all. And so I understand why the culture believes that moral values and moral ethics and truth and the value of human life and and the meaning of life itself are all matters of personal preference because Apart from a knowledge of the God who has revealed these things to his creatures, there is no possible way to define these things objectively. Apart from the knowledge of God, there is nothing for us to do except that which is right in our own eyes. And that this was happening in Israel, among God's people, among people who had God's word, among people who knew God was an inexcusable tragedy. The book of Ruth takes place during dark, dark times. And it gets even worse, continuing on in verses one and two. There was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now we're not told here in the text why the famine came, where God was in the famine, or what purpose it served, but the famine was undoubtedly from the hand of the Lord. We know from other scriptures that that God sends the rain and brings the harvest, and God shuts up the sky and brings famine, God is sovereign over all his creation. And it's possible that God sent the famine on the land as judgment on Israel's sin because the famine reflected just that, the spiritual starvation and moral atrophy of the people of God. And then we're told that, ironically, a man named Elimelech, whose name in Hebrew means, my God is king, from Bethlehem, Bethlehem, which means house of bread, flees with his family from the presence of God, the true king, because the house of bread had no bread. (laughs) And of all places, he brings his family to Moab. Moab. The Moabites hated the people of Israel. It was the Moabites that hired Balaam the sorcerer to call down a curse upon Israel. It was the Moabites who sent ritual prostitutes into Israel to seduce seduce their uh, men to come and worship to their gods. It was the Moabites who participated in gross sexual rituals and even child sacrifice in worship to their god Chemosh there was an even greater spiritual and moral famine in Moab. And this was the place Elimelech decided to bring his family to. And this was the place that became their new home. And it gets even worse, verse three. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. So Naomi becomes widowed in Moab. And it seems to get even worse, verse four. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there in Moab about 10 years. Now, there wasn't any law that explicitly stated that Israelites couldn't marry Moabites, but it was strongly discouraged because Moabites worshiped false gods. And then it gets even worse, verse five and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi had left Bethlehem to find a better life, but life just got worse and worse as time went on, and at the end of just the first five verses of Ruth, we see that Naomi's life has almost entirely been consumed by darkness. But not one word of explanation is given for these dark providences. God rarely explains himself, and he doesn't owe it to anyone to explain himself. But judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So how does Naomi respond? Verses six through 13. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, to return to Bethlehem from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I still have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In other words, Naomi was saying look, God's hand is against me, and I have nothing to offer you guys. I have no sons for you. I have no husband that I could even try to bear sons with to give you, and hypothetically speaking, even if I should bear sons today, would you really want to wait around until they became older and you could marry them? No, it would be too late. Go back. There's nothing for you if you come with me. Notice that even in all Naomi's speech, she recognizes that God is still sovereign. Naomi knows that God has ordained all these things. Naomi knows that as dark as this providence is, that things have not gotten out of his control. Naomi might not yet understand why these things have happened, why God has allowed these things to happen, but she does know that God has allowed these things to happen. So Naomi has not forsaken the Lord, right? If she had forsaken the Lord, she wouldn't be talking about his sovereignty like this, and she certainly wouldn't be returning to Bethlehem, the Promised Land. And then in verses 14 through 18, we see something extraordinary. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, as he has done to you, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah had all just lost their husbands together, but when it came time to decide what they were going to do, Now that their husbands were dead, what happened? Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah were presented with two paths. Path number one, return to Moab. The road will be wide, the way will be easy. You know it well, but God is not there. Path number two, return to Bethlehem. The road will be narrow, the way will be hard and in some ways uncertain, but God is there. Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, and Ruth decides to follow her. And here, Ruth was forsaking the only life she had ever known and the likelihood of marrying and having children. Why? Ruth sees Naomi suffering, and for some reason says, the God of Naomi, that's the God I wanna follow too. Why? Ruth, in love and kindness, grabs Naomi's hand and walks with her into a dark and uncertain future. Why? Because at some point in time, Ruth was brought to faith in God. It's interesting, the word return, shub. In the hebrew occurs 12 times in this chapter 12 times and this repetition of the word shub is the author's way of trying to get you the reader to understand that this theme of returning is a vitally important piece of this story and you bet that this theme of returning to the promised land and to bethlehem the house of bread was just as much of a theological statement as it was a geographical statement because in choosing to leave Moab and return to Bethlehem, Naomi, in an ultimate sense, was really choosing to return to God. And Ruth, it seems, was leaving Moab to go to Bethlehem to, in an ultimate sense, turn to God. For the first time, she says, I'm going with you, Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. But Orpah... She chooses to stay in Moab to, in an ultimate sense, turn away from God. Naomi and Ruth saw something that Orpah didn't see, and that was this, that it's better to have God and lose everything in this life than have everything in this life but lose God. It's better to have God and lose everything in this life and to have everything in this life, but lose God. Naomi already knew this, but like many of us, she doubted it was true. But, but why did Ruth see this, but not Orpa? What made Ruth to differ? Was it anything less than God's sovereign grace? Is it ever anything less than god's sovereign grace that makes us see, That the place we're in, is not the place we ought to be, And that the place we ought to be, Is with the Lord. Is it ever anything less than god's sovereign grace That makes us see that to have him, Is to gain everything. But that to lose him is to lose everything. Is it ever anything less than god's sovereign grace, That makes us want to turn to him. To forsake the easy road back to Moab to take the road to Bethlehem. What made Ruth to differ? J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, one was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. So Naomi and Ruth go back to Bethlehem, verses 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Remember, Naomi had been gone for 10 years. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which in the Hebrew means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi is still bitter against God. She says, Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. I was pleasant when I had a husband, I was pleasant when I had my two sons. But the Lord has taken everything from me. I'm bitter. Don't call me Naomi. That name makes me sick. Call me bitter. Naomi is unable at this time to say, like Joseph did to his brothers at the end of Genesis, God meant this for good. And Naomi is exaggerating her hopelessness. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. But she has Ruth, she's not empty. Now I understand why she said this, because in this ancient culture, most women found their value and purpose in having a husband and children and grandchildren. And because Naomi had put her self-worth and meaning in these things, when she lost them, she lost herself. If you find your identity and value and purpose in the things of this world, which are all temporary and fleeting and passing away, then in the moment you lose those things, you will lose yourself. Naomi doesn't yet know that God has been working together a wonderful plan for her. And we begin to see a hint at this plan in the last verse of the chapter, verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Here, a little glimmer of light begins to creep into the shadow of this dark, dark story. The famine is over. Barley is ready to be harvested. What will happen? What is God doing? Naomi is still in the dark, but I don't want you to be in the dark. I want you to see what God is going to do. So turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter four, the last chapter of Ruth. And look at verses 16 and 17. They read, then Naomi took the child, this is a child Ruth will bear, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Naomi's now a grandma. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David. King David. The greatest king of Israel. The king in the line of the Messiah to come. Jesus Christ, the king of kings. God would bring Jesus into the world 1,200 or so years later through the line of Ruth. And I'm sure in heaven, when all was revealed, Naomi and Ruth cried tears of joy to discover that their suffering was not without purpose, that behind their frowning providence was the hidden smile of God in not only King David but in the king of kings and savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Were it not for the famine in Bethlehem, Elimelech would never have moved his family to Moab. And were it not for Elimelech's moving his family to Moab, his sons would have never met Ruth and Orpah. And were it not for Elimelech's sons meeting Ruth and Orpah, their deaths wouldn't have made any impact on Ruth's life. And were it not for the impact their deaths had on Ruth's life, she would have never returned to Bethlehem with Naomi. And were it not for Ruth's return to Bethlehem with Naomi, she would have never met Boaz, who we'll meet next week in the next chapter. And were it not for Ruth's meeting Boaz, she would have never married him and given birth to Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, in the line of Christ. And thus we see in hindsight that the famine was not without glorious purpose and the deaths of Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion were surely part of God's perfect plan. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Naomi couldn't see what God was doing on this side of heaven. And oftentimes, neither can we. To those of you who in the past or now presently are asking why God where are you, God? What, what could possibly be the purpose of this in my life, God? To those people, I want to say three things this morning. Number one, it is not a sin to cry out to God and to be honest about your questions. It is not a sin to cry out to God and to be honest about your questions. Why not? Because you're crying out to God and being honest about your questions is a way of acknowledging like Naomi did, that he is still God and that he is still sovereign, and that you know that whatever you're going through is a providence that he has brought into your life. Your crying out to God and being honest about your questions is saying, Lord, I am coming to you because I know that your eternal purpose and will foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. I know that you govern all things, big and small, significant and seemingly insignificant by your wise and holy providence. I know that you not only appoint ends, but also appoint the means to achieve those ends. I know that you are sovereign over every detail of my life. To whom shall I go but to you, sovereign Lord. It's not a sin to cry out to God and to be honest about your questions. Number two, you are not alone. You're not alone. I'm sure you've heard it said, be kind because everyone you meet is facing a battle or fighting a battle. It's true, everyone is fighting a battle because sin has affected everyone. And life gets tough for everyone, you're not alone. And Christians, you really are not alone because you have been adopted into the family of God. And so you have brothers and sisters in Christ to help bear your burdens, to support you, to comfort you, strengthen you, encourage you, love you. You're not alone. But more importantly, there is one person who knows you and your situation intimately who can sympathize with you in your weakness who has been tested and tempted and tried in every way and who can say to you in your suffering I know I know and I've been there that person is Jesus and if you have him you truly are never alone because he comes to dwell in you by his Holy Spirit you're not alone Number three, your dark providences are not without purpose. Your dark providences are not without purpose. Perhaps your greatest testimony to the truth about God and the gospel of Jesus is in how you respond to the dark providences in your life. Christians, the world is watching us The world wants to see us stumble and doubt and return to Moab when times get hard. And why? Is that they can know that we're no different than them. But what a powerful witness to the world when our suffering only makes us seek God all the more. And doesn't our suffering cause us to do just that? When is it that we really press into God when times are good or when times are tough? When times are good, we often forget God. But when times are tough, we remember just how much we need him. God often grows us and changes us the most through our dark providences. And God may use your faith through suffering as a witness to the world that the love and the grace and the power of God in the lives of his people is real. Furthermore, Romans 8.28 says that for those who love God, he is sovereignly working all things together, ultimately for their good and his glory. But how do we know? How do we know this is true? The Puritan pastor John Flavel once said, some providences like Hebrew letters must be read backwards. So Hebrew is a language that is read right to left as opposed to like English, which is left to right. He says some providences like Hebrew letters must be read backwards. In other words, sometimes the only way to interpret God's dark providences is by starting with the end of the story. And so when we see the ends of the stories of Joseph and Moses and Naomi and Ruth and Job and David and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and the Apostle Paul and Jesus, we see that God is always at work, often in a quiet, mysterious, and hidden way to bring about his sovereign purposes even through our sin and even through our suffering and those purposes always amount ultimately to our good and his glory. But of course, we can't always see the purposes for God's dark providences in our lives and that's because as long as we're still here on this earth, our stories are still being written. There are many things that we may never understand on this side of heaven but we can have hope that one day, we will see more clearly and more fully what God's purposes were for our suffering. In the beginning of the sermon, I told you a story about Robert Germain Thomas, the missionary to Korea in the mid-1800s who was attacked and brutally murdered as he came upon shore holding his Chinese Bible in hand, but I didn't tell you all of the story after Robert's Chinese Bible was taken by a local Korean man and used as wallpaper in his home, people began coming from all around to read the words on those walls. And eventually, people came to faith in Jesus, and a church was started in that house. And get this, only 15 years after Robert's death, over 100 churches had popped up because the gospel had spread like wildfire throughout Korea. And according to pewresearch.org, in 2010, 29% of South Koreans claimed to be Christian. And in 2012, 71% of Korean uh, Americans living in the U.S. claimed to be Christian as well. And I'm sure that, like Naomi and Ruth, Robert cried tears of joy in heaven to discover God's smiling face behind his frowning providence. The spread of the gospel throughout Korea and the eternal salvation of millions. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So what about you? Do you believe that God is sovereignly orchestrating all things according to his purpose and plan for your good and for his glory, even through your sin and even through your suffering? Do you believe that behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face? Do you believe that he is working? And do you see that he has already worked through Jesus? The truth is that the days when the judges ruled is not just a footnote in history, but a woeful picture of the chaos, corruption and evil in our lives and in our hearts by nature apart from God. By nature we don't want a true king over our lives, we want to be the king of our lives. By nature, we want to do what is right in our own eyes, determining for ourselves what is good, what is right, what is true, what is valuable, what is meaningful. By nature, we don't want to leave Moab to go to Bethlehem. By nature, we'd rather have everything and lose God than have God and lose everything Is this not the story of the rich young ruler? The man who walked away from Jesus dismayed because Jesus wouldn't extend salvation to a man whose hands were filled with other things? And the worst news is not just that we need a true king because we don't do a great job when we rule ourselves, or that when we do what is right in our own eyes, that things don't always end up well, or that what we think is the good life in Moab really isn't as good as it could be in Bethlehem. No. The worst news is that our sin leads to death and separates us from relationship with God. Because of our sin, we are indebted to death. We have earned it. We deserve it. But the greatest news is that the King of Kings Jesus Christ stepped off his heavenly throne and plunged headlong into the shadows of death and darkness, the mire of filth that was a world drowning and dying in sin to be our king and to bring the kingdom of God to earth. He was born of a a virgin in Bethlehem. And throughout his life, he lived perfectly and without sin. He lived the kind of life you and I ought to live before the holy God, but cannot. And then Jesus traded places with us by going to the cross to carry out our death sentences to give us who once wore filthy rags his own royal robe of righteousness. And then he rose from death, vanquishing the powers of sin and Satan and death and darkness that once reigned over us, and he did it all to return his people to God the Father and to bring them into the greater promised land of heaven. And for all who will turn away from their sin, submit their lives under the lordship of Jesus, and trust in him, in him alone for salvation, they are forgiven of their lifetime of sinning against the holiness of God. Their death turns to life. They are brought out of the darkness into the light. Their chains of slavery to sin are broken and they are set free. And they are made children of God the Father forever. So God would put before us two paths today. Path number one, return to Moab. Return to the place of sin and self-rule. The path is wide, the way is easy, we know it well, but God is not there. Path number two, return to Bethlehem. Turn to the place of life and the lordship of Christ. The path is narrow and the way is hard and in some ways it's uncertain, but God is there. Who are you today? Are you Orpah? Do you live in Moab? Does the idea of leaving Moab displease you? Does the idea of living for the true king and giving up your self-rule displease you? Are you content to keep doing what is right in your own eyes without regard for the consequences? If you're Orpah, let me tell you this, you are a slave to Moab. You will always keep going back. You need freedom. You need life, you need a king, you need the king, Jesus Christ. You need someone to fight for you because you have already lost the battle of living up to God's standard of perfection. Turn to Jesus. Are you Ruth? Is today the day you decide to turn to Bethlehem, to Jesus for the first time? Is today the day you have realized that you are empty, lost, broken, desperate apart from God, is today the day you have realized that Moab only brings death and you need freedom and life in Jesus. If you are Ruth, all I want to say is cling to Jesus like Ruth clung to Naomi. Let his people be your people, your family, and let Jesus be your God and King. Are you Naomi? Have you perhaps strayed from Bethlehem? And is today a fresh opportunity for you to return yet again to the Lord? If you're Naomi, you know that even if you're in Bethlehem now that sometimes you find yourself back in Moab. If you're Naomi, you know that you must continually repent of sin and choose this day and every day whom you will serve. If you're Naomi, today run to Jesus, and tomorrow run to Jesus, and the next day run to Jesus and know that one day you will be with him in glory forever. As we continue on in the book of Ruth together, I hope that you all will come along as a Naomi or a Ruth. And I hope to show you in these next few weeks that All of this story points to Jesus. I hope to show you how Jesus is the manifestation, hero, and fulfillment of all history's shadows and dilemmas and mysteries. And how Jesus is the focal point of all God's redemptive work from the Old Testament to the New Testament to today. For all of human history, Jesus has always been the solution to the human dilemma of sin. And just as thousands of years before Jesus came pointed to our desperate need of a savior from sin, so thousands of years after Jesus has already come, will continue to point to our desperate need of a savior from sin. Not only... Does all scripture point to Jesus, but all of life in this world today points to Jesus? And if you're a follower of Jesus today, your story points to Jesus. And one day, you may cry tears of joy in heaven to discover how your light and momentary afflictions were used of God and were preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you judge the Lord by your feeble senses or do you trust Him for His grace? Do you trust that behind your frowning providence is the hidden smile of God? Do you trust that His purposes are ripening fast, unfolding every hour? Do you trust that though the bud may be bitter now, that the flower that blossoms will be sweet? And, do you see that Jesus is the ultimate smiling face behind your frowning providence? Let's pray. Lord God, may you lay these truths upon our hearts, that you are the sovereign God who holds all things in his hand, who has a purpose and plan that is being worked out even this very moment. Lord God, be our king, and command our destinies. And Lord, may we in our suffering look to Christ, the King of kings, who himself suffered and died to give us life. Lord, give us faith that you are working all things together for our good and your glory, and give us faith that behind our frowning providences is your hidden smile. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.